Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And and like Allison was saying, man, it's just so so encouraging to see the way that God is at work in the life of our community and the life of small groups. And and if you want to get plugged in, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to figure out what you think about faith in the first place. Check out a small group. It's a great spot for you. We'd love to have you. So excited as well to continue our new series in the Gospel of John. Uh, but if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, let me just briefly catch you back up and we'll go from there. We've seen from the beginning how like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel of John is kind of like a documentary about Jesus' life and ministry. And and uh, it tells us about who he is and, and what he's done. But John's documentary is very different than the other three. It's, it's really unique. What you see is that the vast majority of the things we read in John's gospel, they're only found there. He ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on, and he gives us a bunch of new kind of never-before-seen footage from the vaults, right? Stuff that's been stored away, then he shows it to us kind of like 98, uh, kind of like the Last Dance 98 Bulls documentary series style, right? And the reason for those differences we saw has a lot to do with the timing and the audience of John's gospel, right? John writes his gospel documentary about 20 or 30 years after all of the other gospels had been written. And that combined with the strong likelihood that he's writing it from the city of Ephesus, which has kind of become the Christian hub of the world by the late first century, means that the audience John's writing to would almost certainly have been familiar with and had access to the other three gospel accounts. And in fact, it's, it's likely that a significant portion of John's readers that he has in mind are second or third generation Christians, people whose parents or grandparents are some of the first to follow Jesus. And, and so they've grown up hearing those stories, and they've grown up reading about them in the, in the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and, and so they're familiar with what Jesus has said and done. And In fact, what's happened is that they've become too familiar with it. And so John's not just trying to rehash everything for a fourth time. He's not just trying to make another documentary about what Jesus did with, from his spin on it. Instead, the focus of John's documentary is on who Jesus really is. You see, what he's trying to do throughout the gospel is to wake people up from this kind of groggy familiarity with Jesus, like a, a numbness towards him, to this spectacular, captivating, life-altering reality of who Jesus claimed that he was and proved himself to be. Because what John's after is for this head-level knowledge about Jesus to become a life-transforming, heart-level belief in him. Something that transforms people's lives both now and forever. And that overarching purpose is front and center in our story this morning, in our passage this morning. As we study what we're going to see John highlighting for us, is that in order for that kind of a superficial head-level knowledge about Jesus to become an eternity-altering heart-level belief in him, something supernatural needs to happen. We need to be born again. It's one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. I can't wait to show it to you this morning. But before we do, let's pray and we'll dive in, see what God's Word has to say to us. God, thanks so much for you, for who you are. Thanks so much that you might record for us in the Gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John the magnitude and the glory, not just Jesus of what you've done, but of who you really are. And so we ask humbly this morning, God, as we come to study your word, might you be gracious to keep showing us more of yourself. Would you make yourself beautiful and captivating and glorious as you really are? Make that so true in our hearts. 
that we might see you fully, that we might worship you rightly, Jesus, and that we might live lives that are transformed by the knowledge of you. So we pray all that, God, for our good, but ultimately so that you might be glorified in us. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 2, verse 23, through uh, the middle of John chapter 3, verse 21. So it begins this way. John chapter 2, 23. Now while Jesus, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing. They believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. And he didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? For no one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And this is the verdict Lights come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Man, there's so much good stuff in here. We we don't have even close to enough time to get to everything. Let me show you some things that are just incredible in this passage. You see, chapter 2, we saw Jesus. He's turning water into wine, and then he turns over the tables in the temple, right? And both of those things we said were ultimately declarations about who he was, right? That he's the ultimate purifier, the Lamb of God whose blood takes away our sin and makes us clean, and that he's the true and better temple, right? He's the means by which a sinful people might be able to encounter and dwell with a holy God. And and while some people heard and saw the things that Jesus said and did, and and they came to understand and believe the truth about who he was, the verses at the end of chapter 2, they tell us that there were also many who just merely saw displays of power. 
They didn't see and understand what his actions were intended to show them about who he really was. Their belief in Jesus was superficial. It was inadequate. That's why, and Jesus knew that. That's why John tells us that Jesus didn't entrust themselves to him. Literally, John's using a play on words there with the words belief and entrust. He's literally translated what he's basically saying is, they believed Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe them. You see, and John uses these verses at the end of chapter 2 as this transition that, that's meant to kind of set up and frame this encounter he has with Nicodemus at night. And passage tells us in verse 1, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a member of a Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus, and what that means is that Nicodemus was one of the de- most devout, most knowledgeable religious leaders in his day, right? He's a leader of other leaders, right? And a guy who you'd think would be able to understand what Jesus' words and actions were always meant to point to, right? Somebody who had memorized large portions, if not the entire Old Testament, right? Like Nicodemus was the guy who could have figured it out. And yet what becomes pretty clear real quickly is that Nicodemus doesn't get it at all. He absolutely has missed who Jesus really is. Verse 2, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs God's doing if, if God weren't with him. You see, what Nicodemus' words reveal is that just like the crowds, right, who, who had seen what Jesus has done, Right? His, his, there were just displays of divine power. Right, What Nicodemus knows and believes about Jesus is just as inadequate and just as misguided as all the crowds who are coming to him with this kind of superficial belief. And, and it's a reality that his coming to Jesus at night just serves to reinforce. Right, It's not just that Nicodemus doesn't want to be seen associating with Jesus. In John's gospel, night and darkness, they are always a symbol for spiritual blindness and unbelief. Always. And yet, unlike the crowds, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and and this assertion that he makes about who he thinks Jesus is, it reveals that he seems to be aware that there's something he's still missing. He has some level of understanding that there's something more about Jesus that he doesn't get. Pretty much all the commentators, they point out that there's this implied question in the way Nicodemus addresses Jesus, right? In essence, what he's saying is, listen, we know that you're a teacher from God, but are you more than that? Are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you really? And instead of answering his implied question, I love this, Jesus just totally shifts the conversation in a totally different direction. And what Jesus is actually doing is what Jesus is doing is he is he's course correcting Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, listen, you're, you want to figure out who I am. Here's the reality. You don't have the ability to discern who I am yet. You think you can figure it out, but you don't even have the ability to figure it out yet. He tells Nicodemus in chapter, verse 3, Very truly I tell you, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus, he's claiming that he can see something, some of the truth at least about who Jesus is and his miracles. And Jesus tells him nobody can see the truth. Nobody can see the truth about God and his messianic king's rule and reign unless they are born again. And that brings us to the heart of the passage and really the heart of the sermon this morning. You see, Jesus' whole conversation with Nicodemus is saturated with this language of new birth and rebirth, right? What I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to highlight four things that we learn in the passage about this new birth that Jesus says is a prerequisite. It's necessary in order for anybody to be able to come to a true, adequate, saving faith in him. So we're going to see what it is, how it happens, why we need it, and the evidence for it. Right? So what it is, how it happens, 
why we need it, and the evidence for it, right? Let's begin, right? So, so what is this new birth that Jesus talks about, right? If you're sitting there thinking, what the crap is Jesus talking about? I have no idea. New birth, like what, what is going on here, right? Well, you're in good company because Nicodemus neither, he doesn't have any idea either, and he's like the utmost religious teacher of his day, right? And so you are in good company if you don't get it yet. Verse 4, right? Nicodemus, he says, how can somebody be born when they are old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, right? Jesus' words are just absolutely mind-boggling to Nicodemus. Like, he doesn't have any categories to put them in, right? And the fact that Nicodemus is talking out loud about, like, how do I climb back in there? Like, how is that a thing? It just reveals that, like, it has completely gone over his head, right? Like, he absolutely does not understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus tries to clarify things for him a little further in verses 5 and 6. He, he tells Nicodemus, he says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. For flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Right? Jesus is telling Nicodemus, bro, I, I'm not talking about a physical rebirth here, buddy. Right? I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth, the kind of spiritual rebirth that Ezekiel talked about when God spoke through him in Ezekiel 36 and promised that one day he says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put within you a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Did you notice that? Born of water and the Spirit. This new birth that Jesus tells Nicodemus is the prerequisite for a true saving faith. It refers to this spiritual transformation that happens in people, whereby God not only washes and cleanses them, but he gives them this new heart. He gives them a new heart, not only that can see the truth about him and his kingdom, but a heart that genuinely longs to follow him. A heart that's not just trying to follow him out of fear of repercussions, but a heart that longs to know and follow God. You see, being born again isn't just a matter of turning over a new spiritual leaf, right? It's not just like a minor spiritual renovation that Nicodemus needs. It is this complete and utter renewal, a total transformation. In other words, famous missiologist Leslie Newbegin, he puts it this way, he says, saving faith is not simply a matter of illumination. It is a matter of regeneration. It's not just new seeing. It is new being. You must be born again. See, Nicodemus, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, the only way you are ever going to be able to discern the truth about who I am, the only way you're going to be able to see the kingdom of God and his, king, his messianic king's rule and reign in this life and in eternity, the only way into that is if God on a heart level intervenes in your life and fundamentally transforms the core of who you are. Something supernatural has to happen. See, that brings us to the next thing we learn about this new birth, right? Not just what it is, but how it happens. Right? That phrase, born again, it can also be translated born from above. And it's likely that John actually intends both of those meanings because John is like a master author and he loves using words that have double meaning on purpose, right? That's like his thing, right? 
The point is that being born again, right, this spiritual regeneration is not something that you do. It's something that God does in you, right? That's why, right, that's, that's why Jesus, that's what Jesus is getting at in verse, verse 8 when he tells Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What he's saying is that the spiritual regeneration, this new birth is like the wind. Not only the fact that you don't totally understand the wind, but more importantly that you don't control it. You don't control the wind, Nicodemus. It does what it wants. It's something we are out of control of. It's something that God is in charge of. That's why Jesus never tells Nicodemus to figure out how to be born again. Did you notice that? You see, in telling Nicodemus that in order for him to see and enter, in order for him to understand and believe the the truth about God and his kingdom, that he needs to be born again, Jesus isn't telling Nicodemus there's something additional he needs to do. What he's telling Nicodemus is that there is something supernatural that has to be done in you. You see, that's a big part of the the reason why Nicodemus is so utterly confused with Jesus' words, right? Religious people like Nicodemus, they tend to approach God from this kind of business contract perspective, right? If I do X, then God is obligated to do Y, right? If I hold up my end of the bargain, then God is obligated to hold his end of the bargain, right? And vice versa, right? And it's always about what you do, which is why religious people are either intolerably self-righteous or inconsolable self-conscious and depressed, right? Because the whole basis for their faith and their relationship with God utterly hinges on what they can do, on their performance. And they either think that they're doing really great and so they look down on everybody else, or they are hopeless about themselves and they realize that they're falling short and they can't bear to look at themselves, let alone anyone else. See, what Jesus tells Nicodemus is that our only job is not to look at ourselves and not to look at others, that our only job is to look at him. Verse 14 and 15, Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is referencing this event that's recorded in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, where as the people of God or the Israelites are headed toward the promised land, right? They, they forget God's kindness and his goodness to them, and they start to get impatient and to doubt God and to complain about him endlessly and to speak against God as though he's not for them and as though he's not trustworthy and though he can't be counted on. And so God sends these deadly venomous snakes into their camp. And I don't know about you, but the only thing I can imagine that would make camping any worse is getting bit by a deadly snake while camping right camping is pointless people like we have invented houses and beds right it's just that's a side note right but what happens, right, is that these things are everywhere. They're biting people. They're killing them, right? And so God's people, they cry out to God in pain and, they, and for forgiveness and mercy, right? And God in mercy, he tells Moses to make this bronze image of a snake and to put it up on a pole. And he says, anyone who will but look at the snake on the pole, they'll be healed. They'll live. See, the solution to the Israelite serpent problem It wasn't killing the serpents, it wasn't making medicine, it wasn't pretending that they weren't there, it wasn't passing new anti-serpent laws, it wasn't climbing the pole. The answer was for them to look in faith at the image on the pole. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that story was a gracious foreshadowing. Like the image of the serpent 
Jesus would be lifted up on a pole, on a cross, for our sins, and anyone who will but look on him in faith might be saved. See, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that God is the one who does all of the work. All the work in salvation. He gives us a new spiritual life that enables us to see Jesus as the Savior that we need so that we can in turn put our faith in Him. And what Jesus is saying is that you can't even trust me. You can't believe in me. You can't know who I am and put your hope in me unless God gives you a new heart that can do it in the first place. Jim Keller puts it this way. He says, the faith that brings eternal life, the faith that's consistent with the new birth, is to see the costly grace of Jesus Christ and to see that it's His work that has saved us and to rest in it. God does all the work and all we about do is to look at Him. And it's this humble looking at Jesus that's at the center of the great 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, his conversion story. He Famously kind of writes it in his own autobiography this way. He describes how as a, a teenager, one snowy Sunday, he wandered into a church just desperate to figure out what it means to be saved and how that he might achieve that. And, and what happened is the minister that day, actually of that church that he wandered into, the, the minister didn't even show up. And so this random guy from the congregation makes his way up to the pulpit to preach the, the text for that morning. It was a passage from Isaiah 45. Simply read this, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Spurgeon recalls how this untrained guy got up in front of the church and simply said this, Dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It just says look. Looking doesn't take a deal of, great deal of pains, it's not lifting your foot or your finger. It's just a look. Man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. You, you, may, you don't need to be worth a, a thousand a year to be able to look, for anyone can look. Even a child can look. But many of you are looking to yourselves, and it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves for the text says, look unto me. Jesus says, look unto me. I'm sweating drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. I rise again. Look unto me. For I'm ascended to heaven. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. You have nothing to do but to look. Spurgeon writes how at once he says, I saw the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. Don't miss this. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard the word look, oh, what a charming word it seemed to me. And I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. For there and then the cloud was gone and the darkness had rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. See, what he's talking about in his story is about God giving him a new birth. How does that new birth happen? God regenerates your heart so that you can see the truth about who Jesus is. And that new spiritual birth, it enables you to put your trust in Jesus. To look on him 
in a humble faith and to rest in his finished work. See, that leads us to the, the next thing I need to show you in the passage, right? Not just what the new birth is or how it happens. See, what you have to see is why we all need it. See, Jesus makes clear that Nicodemus needs to be born again. Because without it, not only is he unable to see and believe the truth about God, right? but that verse 18 tells us, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. What he's telling Nicodemus is that you are not just a neutral third party to God. In the midst of your unbelief, in the midst of your inability to see who I am and to put your trust in me, you do not stand on neutral ground before God. Instead, you stand opposed to him. You see, Jesus isn't, John isn't just telling us that people are condemned by God for rejecting Jesus. He says that people are already stand in front of God condemned because they have rejected him. And unless we're born again, we're going to stay that way. The results of which is that we will perish, not just talking about physical death, but spiritual death and judgment, right? Jesus is our rescuer, not our judge, John is trying to say. And like the people of Israel who were bitten by the vipers, that we don't need moral improvement and we don't need a religious booster shot and, and we don't, what we don't need is just some helping hand to get us across the line. What we need is the wrath of God to be removed from us. The curse of death is on you and me. It's at work within us because of our treasonous rebellion against the one true king and creator of the universe. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our sins. We are hopeless and lifeless without God giving us a new birth. And we are all in this boat. Verse 7, the pronouns Jesus used, they turn from personal to plural in verse 7. And the point Jesus is making is that Jesus, Nicodemus, this word is not just for you. All of us need this new rebirth. You see, you and I would have this, we tend to group people into two categories, right? Good people, bad people. Here's the reality. All of us are bad people. All of us are, right? Religious and irreligious alike. And that reality astounded Nicodemus, right? He asks in verse 9, how can this be, right? He's not talking about how does this physically happen. He's, he is incredulous before Jesus. What he's saying is that Jesus, all this stuff that I have done, all the ways that I have lived, all the heritage I have, all the life that I lived, all the good that I've done, that's, that doesn't give me any kind of boost with you. That stuff doesn't matter before you. It's not the thing that's granting me new life. The commentator puts it this way, he says, as a devout Orthodox Jew, Nicodemus presumed that his place in the kingdom was assured by virtue of his race and circumcision. Besides that, he was a religious professional, moreover, a Pharisee, right? There could be few Jews, if any, in the entire city that night whose credentials were more impressive for, as far as acceptance before God was concerned, and yet Jesus tells him he must be born again. For Nicodemus, with all his knowledge and gifts and understanding and position and integrity, cannot enter this promised kingdom by virtue of his own standing and works. What hope is there for anyone else who seeks salvation along those lines? David Platt sums it up this way. For what we don't need is superficial religion. We need supernatural regeneration, for we are dead in our sin, and we must be born again. See, Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus, and he comes on the basis, on the foundation of his own credentials, 
He was functionally looking to himself. And we do the same thing all the time. And yet Jesus says to him and to all of us, you must be born again so that you can stop looking to yourself and start looking to me. See, and when that happens, everything changes. That brings us to the fourth thing we see in the passage about this new birth, right? What it is, how it happens, why we need it, the evidence of it in our lives. See, saving faith, looking to Jesus and relying on his victory over sin and resting in his finished work on our behalf is only possible if God regenerates our hearts and gives us new spiritual life. And when that happens, when God does that, it transforms our entire lives. See, the Bible is clear that we are saved by faith alone, but we're not saved by faith which remains alone, right? If you've been born again to see and believe the truth about Jesus, it always results in a transformed life. It always does. There aren't exceptions. That's what John is talking about in the last few verses here. Right In verse 19, he says, this is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil, they hate the light, and they won't come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what they've done has been done in the sight of God. Here's the deal. Here's the point John's trying to make. When the gospel when the gospel goes to work in you, it changes who you are. And instead of loving the darkness, you start to love the light. Instead of always retreating from the light for fear of your sin being exposed, you increasingly begin to come into the light. Not because what you do is always right, but because you're no longer afraid of the light anymore. You know that there's life in the light. And instead of walking in sin and darkness, you start to walk in the light and righteousness. And your mind that used to be filled with thoughts of self and pride and focused utterly on yourself, what happens is now there's holiness and a love for God and a desire to worship Him that's at work within you. And you're not perfect and you're not about to be, but your heart and your life are headed in a brand new direction. See, here's the reality. If you are here this morning and you view Jesus as your get-out-of-hell-free card, if you, if you come to churches to make up for the bad stuff that you've done so that you can get on God's good side again, but you have no intentions of changing, here's the reality. You don't know Jesus. You have not been born again. You are dead in your sin, and you are still under his just wrath and judgment for it. And I say that to you not in anger or bitterness, but in love for you. It is a superficial, worthless faith. And Jesus will not entrust himself to you with that. See, the truth is when God, by his grace, opens the eyes of your heart to see and believe the splendor and the magnitude of John 3.16, right, that God so loved That he so loved rebels. And fools. And idolaters like you and me. That he sent his one and only son. 
to live in our place and die in our place, to be murdered on our behalf so he might pay the penalty of our, our sin for our treasonous rebellion against him so that instead of receiving his just punishment for our sin, we might instead receive eternal life that begins now and goes on into eternity. When that reality clicks in your heart, it transforms you. And you'll start to hate sin because it belittles the God who has loved you. And you'll start to love the truth and the light, even when it exposes your sin. Because it honors the God who sent his son to save for you. And increasingly you will long to live for him and for his glory and not your own. And you will increasingly long to worship him no matter what anyone else thinks about. See, and that's exactly what you see happening in Nicodemus's life at the end of John's Gospel. Chapter 19, Jesus has just been executed because the religious leaders hated him. And nobody, especially one among those religious leaders, would have any reason to be associated with Jesus, to, to be connected with him. It was far too dangerous. And at the end of chapter 19, what you see is Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea coming boldly before Pilate, not at night, but in the broad daylight, asking for the body of Jesus so that they can personally prepare his body for burial, something only slaves and women did. You see, Nicodemus had been transformed. He'd been born again, able to see the truth about who Jesus really was, to come to look on him in faith, the kind of faith that transforms enemies of God into his most most ardent followers. So every week, when we take communion here, what we're doing, what we're remembering is the means by which that kind of transformation is possible. That God sent his son to live and to die on our behalf, and that he regenerates our hearts so that we can look in faith on that reality and see it as good news communion. It doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. It doesn't save you. The Bible is clear that faith alone in Jesus is the one thing that changes your relationship with God. I said communion is a chance for us to remember that Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed for us, that we had sinned and yet Jesus allowed the viper of death to bite him instead of us. And all we need to do is but look on him in faith. And so if you're here this morning and you believed in Jesus like that, if you've come to look on him, to rely on him and trust him like that, or you do for the first time this morning, I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table in the left and on the right in the back. You can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is, and what you're realizing this morning is that you've been looking to yourself, and you don't know how to look to him yet, I just want you to know you are so welcome here. You're welcome in our church, and you're welcome in small groups, and you're welcome in this community. But I want to encourage you, hold off. Hold off on taking communion. Because the last thing God is after is religious rituals and going through the motions. What he's after is a heart, 
a heart-level belief in Him that transforms your life, not just a head-level knowledge about Him. And so communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and this church is, and you are welcome. As we sing and as we worship God, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to remind you. See, John tells us these stories. He writes all of this stuff down so that you and I might come to a real belief in Jesus. And the invitation every week he is inviting us to ask of ourselves, have you believed like that? Have you been born again? Do you have new desires? Are you increasingly walking in the light? Or are, like the, or are the, the people at the end of John 2 a better picture of you? You say you believe in Jesus, but it's a belief that isn't changing you. Maybe this morning God is opening your eyes to that reality for the first time. That like Nicodemus, you've been functionally looking to yourself for salvation. And he's giving you new spiritual eyes to see that it's only in looking to Jesus you might be saved. And I want to encourage you this morning. Do it. If Jesus is opening, if he's giving you eyes to see. That the only way to salvation is to look to him. Do it. Look to him. In humble faith. Tell him that you have looked everywhere else, but it doesn't work. And look to him. For those of you who've been born again, who've come to see and believe the truth about Jesus. The invitation in this passage is that you might keep looking at him. Keep looking at him. See, the default mode of our heart is self-salvation. And when we are not looking at Jesus, you will always start to look back at yourself. You will either be looking at him or you will be looking at yourself. Those are the only two options. Let this passage fill your heart with a gratitude and a thankfulness that God in his grace has regenerated your heart so that you might look to him in the first place. Ask him to cause that reality to well up within you a love for him and a worship for him. But also ask him that he might cause it to well up in you a life characterized by dependent prayer. See, it's not just you that needs new birth. It's your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers. And unless God by his spirit intervenes in their lives and regenerates their hearts so that they might see the truth about him, they will never enter the kingdom. And so as God's people who have been reborn, our highest priority must be not just to live out our faith in front of others, but to pray that the God who saves and who gives new hearts might give them new hearts first. Ask him to do it. Ask him to do it for your friends and your family and your neighbors and your kids. So that they can choose to look in faith on him for their good and for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for you. We're so thankful this morning, Jesus, for the words that you spoke in love to Nicodemus. 
And while they must have felt confusing, while they must have felt difficult for him, Jesus, you spoke those words to him so that he might have life in looking to you instead of himself. Thanks that you regenerated his heart, God. And that in the end, he came to love and live for you and have a transformed life because of who you are. God, and we pray that you might do the same for us. That you might give us new hearts that can see the truth about who you are. That can look to you in humble faith. That can reject a looking anywhere else. That can set our hearts on you. God, only you can do that. We need you to do it in us. We need you to do that in our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our kids. God, would you give us new birth so that we might have eternal life, both now and forever. We pray, amen.